Hi, welcome to Monocular, a storytelling podcast where I offer you a one-eyed look at the distant and not-so-distant past. Thank you for tuning into Monocular, and my apologies for the gap between this episode and the previous one. I almost bit off more than I could chew. What was going to be a regular episode took on a life of its own and kept on growing, not just in volume, but also in complexity. As it turned out, I had to split the episode into two parts. The foundation of this double episode is my love of the Beach Boys. But rather than just singing the praises of this amazing and intriguing band, this is the story of how the Beach Boys ended up playing an important part in some of the most crucial aspects of my life. While the story is obviously about the Beach Boys and about me, my hope is that it will also be a story that is both relevant and entertaining for people who aren't into the Beach Boys or know me personally. Because, to me, it's a story of how identities are formed. It's about how music is not simply the soundtrack to your life, but also something that influences it and offers many new and inspiring perspectives on it. It's also a story about friendships and, not least, love. As always, Monocular is written, performed, recorded, and produced by me, Miguel Elbeck. If you go to monocularpot.com, you can learn everything about the show. And you can also support the ongoing production of Monocular, by becoming a patron for just $2 a month. Another great way to support the podcast is by subscribing to it and maybe even leaving a five-star review. Monocular is a Torahtown StoryWorks production, and for more information about the company, a one-stop shop for all kinds of storytelling, please visit torahtown.com. Okay, it's time. Here is part one of this marathon two-part episode, which bears the title, Sunny Down Snuff. I'm all right. Two thousand four was an incredibly eventful year for me. It was a year I went to America for the first time, and more specifically, California. I went there to meet up with a bunch of people whom I'd met on the official online message board for the band Granddaddy. Specifically, we're all heading to Coachella to see Radiohead, Pixies, The Flaming Lips, Dio's Air, and a whole array of other bands. After that, I hung out in California with this amazing array of brand new American friends I'd made. I just turned 22, and this was the first time going anywhere outside of Denmark on my own, and it was absolutely mind-blowing. The California heat, getting to speak English all the time, walking all over San Francisco, where I stayed with my brand new friends, Troy and Robert, for about two weeks after Coachella. But most of all, it was that feeling of doing things almost completely on my own terms for the first time in my life, in the company of all these terribly cool people, who only knew me as the person I was right then and there, and seemingly quite like that person. 
It was, up until that point, the fastest I'd ever made friends. And several of the people I met on that first trip are still among my dearest friends today, 16 years later. The California trip was in May of 2004. Then a few months later, in August, I started studying at Aarhus University. In terms of education, I'd spent 10 years in public school, then three years in high school, or the Danish equivalent thereof, followed by two years getting a pretty lame and instantly outdated degree in multimedia design, which taught me, for instance, how to make interactive CD-ROMs. I'm getting old, but not that old. I got this degree in 2003, not 1993. Then I had a year off from school, during which I did not get a job making interactive CD-ROMs. Instead, I pondered my future while working as a substitute teacher. In early 2004, I applied for journalism school and was scheduled to take the admissions test in May. But then I got a surprise tax refund worth about $1,000 and immediately spent the money on plane tickets to California. Everybody else on the granddaddy message board was going to go to Coachella, but I'd given up on joining everyone. The tax refund changed that. Only later did I realize I'd booked the trip on top of the admissions test at journalism school. There's no way I was going to cancel that California trip. So I said, fuck it, and quickly came to terms with then having to hope that I'd be accepted at one was my second choice, or his university, and specifically the bachelor's program for aesthetics and culture. Acceptance would be based on my high school grades, which were all over the place, and I later found out that I was one of only two students who got accepted through the special second quota system, where your acceptance is also based on your cover letter. I apparently wrote a decent enough one, because my grade average was 0.1 too low, and I still got in. My expectations weren't terribly high in terms of the social aspect of this new group of people at university. I didn't like the social aspect of public school very much, and high school really wasn't that much better. While multimedia design did allow me to hang out with some cool guys and girls, it still didn't really feel as if I was among my people. But that changed at university. The immediate love I'd felt for all my new California friends a few months earlier was repeated with the aesthetics and culture gang. Finally, I'd found an educational context where the social aspect was every bit as exciting and important as the actual part about learning new things. This group of roughly 30 people consisted of an incredible mix of intellectuals and creative artsy-fartsy types, with everybody being a mix of both and the foundation of friendships that I would like to think will last the rest of my life was quickly formed, even within the first few weeks. It's always interesting to ponder what blocks people use to build their identity with, but I have absolutely no doubt that, if you were to add them all up, a very significant amount of my identity blocks were carved straight out of 2004. Besides Granddaddy, the most important band to provide the soundtrack to this new phase of my life, as an aesthetics and culture student who went to California as often as possible and about once a year on average, was a highly unexpected one, the Beach Boys. Up until 2004, the Beach Boys had simply been an oldies band to me. Strangely enough, one of my very first musical memories revolved around their song, Barbara Ann, which was on a mixtape my parents had, and which me and my brother and sister would listen to quite frequently. I was around three or four when I first listened to that tape, and I remember being frightened by the song, as it put horrific images in my head of a girl lying on some sort of table with men torturing her. I have no idea why a lovely pup tune like Barbara Ann would do that to me, 
or how it was even able to conjure up images like that at such an early age. But it did, nonetheless. I'm still able to recall what it kind of looked like, but I'm obviously not afraid of the song anymore. As a kid and teenager, I was heavily preoccupied with bands such as Guns N' Roses, Nirvana, Bon Jovi, Metallica, and Aerosmith, as were my older brother and sister, whose music taste I very much latched onto. So, when my parents were gifted a Beach Boys compilation CD with 27 songs when I was about 10 years old, my interest in them didn't stretch beyond the biggest of the big hits, such as Surfing USA and I Get Around. Probably good vibrations too, but I remember confusing that song with I Get Around, so that should reveal exactly how into the Beach Boys I was at that point. Then, in the spring of 2004, I very randomly became obsessed with their song Kokomo which was featured on the soundtrack to the 1988 Tom Cruise movie Cocktail and provided the Peach Boys with their first number one hit since Good Vibrations 22 years earlier. I'm not exactly sure why it took me until 2004 to realize the brilliance of this extremely catchy song, but it hit me very hard. So much, in fact, that I decided to do my own rock and roll cover version of it. It's largely embarrassing, especially due to my feeble attempt at replicating the Beach Boys vocals. But I do have a fondness for the arrangement and the fact that I could just record the entire thing on my own, on live drums, bass, and guitar, all of which I had access to after spending years and years as a budding musician and songwriter with an ever-growing home studio setup. In terms of becoming more fully acquainted with the Beach Boys, the Kokomo cover was somewhat of a freak incident, however. It didn't make me dive into the Beach Boys catalog to search for something that could potentially be even better. As such, when I went to California a few weeks after recording Kokomo and I had every reason in the world to blast out Beach Boys tunes, I completely missed that opportunity. There was simply still no interest, even while I was in their home state. Rather, I listened to Tonsa Granddaddy, along with my California friends, since that was indeed the band that brought us all together. It would take another couple of months before the first truly lasting seed of Beach Boys passion would be sown. At the end of June, the Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore romantic comedy, Fifty First Dates, premiered in Denmark. And even though I wasn't a huge fan of either of them, for some reason I went and saw it with a friend at the theater the night it premiered. While I enjoyed the movie, what stood out to me was this brilliant song that played quite a central role in the movie, as is the song that Drew Barrymore's memory-loss-stricken character sings when she has seen Adam Sandler's character and is thus having a good day. The song sounded a bit familiar, but I didn't know what it was called, nor who was playing it. The dialogue in the movie reveals it to be the Beach Boys, and the song was Wouldn't It Be Nice. I became absolutely obsessed with that song, and would listen to it constantly for quite a long period of time. I even made plans to record my own version of that too, but thankfully never did. Nevertheless, Wouldn't It Be Nice was the song that helped crack open my excitement about the Beach Boys, and I eagerly went back to my parents' compilation CD to explore more. One day, I happened to catch the music video for Good Vibrations on VH1, and it finally sung in what an amazing song that is. And that it is, all things considered, on quite a different level than I get around. At some point in the fall, I was riding back and forth with a friend in California, who started telling me about he and some of his friends had gone to Foster's Freeze, a local Beach Boys hangout in their hometown of Hawthorne, before they then went to buy this album by Brian Wilson I'd never heard of, called Smile. To be honest, I'd barely even heard of Brian Wilson, but I learned that he was apparently the true genius behind the Beach Boys, and that Smile was his lost masterpiece from the late 60s that he had then decided to recreate from scratch before it was then finally released in September 2004. My friend described how he and his friends had then driven around Hawthorne 
and Manhattan Beach listening to the album in its entirety. Even though I was very clueless about both Brian Wilson and Smile, I could tell that it was an incredibly special moment for them, and looking back on it now, I realized how amazing it must have been for them. That marked the first time that anybody had ever mentioned Smile to me, and I naturally got quite curious about it. It didn't lessen my excitement that everybody I knew who were into Granddaddy would go on about Smile and how amazing it was. Naturally, I wanted to buy it. But this was 2004, and I was a student with very limited financial means, and I simply couldn't afford it. So I did what I had to do. I put the CD on my Christmas wish list. Not long after, one of my new friends at Aesthetics and Culture, a guy also called Mikkel, but someone who wasn't specifically into Granddaddy, would mention Smile to me, and, like everyone else who had been captivated by it, he would go on and on and on about how amazing it was. One evening, myself and a couple of others went to his house, and for me, this hangout was all about him letting me listen to Smile. For some inexplicable reason, the others weren't into it, so I didn't get to listen to all of it. But he did serve up previews of all the tracks, and all of Good Vibrations, which closes the album and was of course the only track the others knew and thus liked. He also played parts of Pet Sounds, performed live in London by Brian Wilson, and some of the concert film of Beach Boys playing Nebworth in 1980. He told me all kinds of stories about it, and I especially remember that he started talking about Brian Wilson's mental issues, and how they had to put up a giant don't panic sign for him on the Nebworth stage, which is visible in the film. I owe this Miggle guy a lot, because he truly opened up the gates of this expanding Beach Boys universe for me. Not long after the hangout at his house, he lent me his copy of Pet Sounds, the legendary 1966 album on which Wouldn't It Be Nice is the opening track, and on which classics such as God Only Knows and Sloop John B. are to be found. For the first time ever, in November of 2004, I got to listen to it in its entirety, and my mind was officially completely blown. While I missed the opportunity to listen to even one Beach Boys song during my 2004 California trip, I sure made up for it in 2005. I actually went to California twice that year, both in May, which was essentially a duplicate trip of the 2004 trip, and thus it included another trip to Coachella, as well as a month and a half long trip starting in mid-July and ending in early September. On the first of the two trips, I was intensely reading Brian Wilson's 1991 autobiography, which I'd later find out was a controversial book that resulted in plagiarism charges and defamation lawsuits, and, not least, Brian himself disowning the book completely. At the time, I had no idea about this and was mainly intrigued by the core aspects of his life story that still hold true. The role of Brian, Dennis, and Carl's abusive and unsupportive father the lack of understanding and appreciation of his genius from others, not least his cousin and Beach Boys frontman, Mike Love. The drug issues that eventually pushed him so far over the edge that a comeback at times seemed quite unlikely. The second trip was kicked off by me and my friends going to X-Fest in Modesto, where Granddaddy would play their final show before their reunion seven years later. Playing as a three-piece, they were billed as Granddaddy Time Machine and only played early songs as well as a bunch of covers including I Get Around, in which Jason Lytle changed the central lyric to make it decidedly less surfery cool. We always take my van, because it's never been beat. The trip also involved a bunch of us going to Los Angeles, which was a first for me. Naturally, as a huge Guns N' Roses fan, seeing the Sunset Strip and having a meal at the Rainbow Bar and Grill, the legendary location which is featured in the videos for November Rain and Estranged, was obviously a huge deal to me. 
but it was equally special to go to Hawthorne in southwestern LA, the hometown of the Beach Boys, but also the hometown of Dio's, who had performed the year before at Coachella, and their frontman, Joel, had also been a guest at Granddaddy's X-Fest show, singing along on I Get Around. Dio's also played a show in downtown LA while we were in town, and Joel even let me and my friends crash at his place for the night which was absolutely generous, but also a quite common gesture for anyone who was part of the extended family of granddaddy colleagues and fans. While we were at his apartment, we all hung out, drank whiskey, and Joel played the guitar. He tried to remember some Guns N' Roses songs to accommodate my excitement over them, and while he couldn't remember how to play Mr. Brownstone, he did play Patience and ask me to sing it, which was quite a kick for 23-year-old me. The following day, Joel, who's a huge Beach Boys fan, graciously acted as our tour guide around Hawthorne and showed us a bunch of important places from Beach Boys history. This included Foster's Freeze, where the young Beach Boys used to hang out, and it's a hamburger stand, at least according to the Beach Boys lore and a sign put up by the establishment, that helped inspire the song Fun Fun Fun. Dio's, coincidentally, also had a publicity photo shoot at this particular hamburger stand. We also saw Hawthorne High School, which the Wilson brothers attended, and then, most importantly, the Beach Boys landmark, which is at the location of the house where the brothers grew up and the band cut started. Sponsors of the landmark got to put a little message on a brick, and since Joel and his friends had sponsored it, a brick read, H-Town forever. The grand finale of this month-and-a-half-long California trip can really have been much grander. Going to Berkeley to see Brian Wilson at the Greek Theater, performing Smile in its entirety, along with a full set of Beach Boys classics amounting to 42 songs in total. It was a flat-out awesome experience with so many highlights that it seemed unbelievable. I was especially blown away by the fact that the band was able to recreate the incredibly complex sound of Smile live, but I guess it helped that there were 18 extremely talented people on stage. The show took place right after Hurricane Katrina, and Brian finished off the show with a plea to support the victims, followed by what would be the last of the 42 songs, Love and Mercy. A common expression in Danish is that things sometimes come together in a higher unity. It sounds quite religious, but the way it's commonly used is essentially equivalent to the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. In terms of my almost overwhelming excitement about the Beach Boys, that California trip really had quite a few things coming together in a higher unity. Not only did Granddaddy, my other favorite band, play a Beach Boys song at their final show, I also got a personally guided tour of Hawthorne, before seeing Brian Wilson play his masterpiece in its entirety. To me, that's the best kind of higher unity. Back in 2004, I sat down to write a kind of journal entry about the Beach Boys, although it was just a document on my computer. I could tell that this was a band that would end up meaning the world to me, and so I thought I'd jot down some words. At this point, I still hadn't listened to Smile in its entirety, so it is indeed at the very early stages of my fascination with the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson. One of the things that fascinates me the most as I reread these words from 2004 is how seriously I was taking myself as a songwriter at the time. Talking about Smile, which, again, I had not even heard once in its entirety, I stated, I know I'm gonna love it. And I know it's going to have a major effect on my own songwriting. I've finally been listening more closely to the remaining 20 or so tracks on my parents' compilation album, which I never paid much attention to, and even considered trying to recreate good vibrations just for the challenge, but then decided I'd better not. 
I did write a song with four-part harmonies, though, and I called it Force a Smile. Neither direct references to smile, but maybe just a hint of what's to come. I ended this paragraph with a sentence that, to my 38-year-old self, is both quite funny and embarrassing, endearingly delusional, but also a little bit sad. When people are going to analyze the development in my songwriting, maybe they'll find that song and go, that's around the time he started listening to the Beach Boys. Oh well. As it turned out, the songwriting analysts never came a-knockin', but I did find immense inspiration in both Smile, which I ended up getting as a Christmas present later that month, just like I'd hoped, and of course, Pet Sounds, along with a whole bunch of other albums and individual songs by the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson. My band was called The Spring Colds. In spite of the plural name, it only consisted of me, though it would feature various guest performers. At this point, I'd written and recorded two albums, which were as self-released as they possibly could be. CDRs, homemade cover art, printed out on a color inkjet printer, distributed by hand to friends and family and fellow students. Of course, I also made my music available online, but this was pre-streaming, so it was through pretty clunky services and homemade websites. I never managed to create too much excitement about my music, but at this point, this hadn't deterred my motivation. On the contrary, I was dead set on making my third album my most ambitious yet, and I was directly inspired by Brian Wilson in the sense that he was 23 years old when he made Pet Sounds, and that was the age I turned in 2005, so I was going to try my very best. It was going to be the best possible album I could do at 23. Knowing full well, of course, I wasn't on track to create anything as brilliant as Pet Sounds. But I like the link. So much so that the artwork for the album, which I ended up calling Sapphire 8, including a bunch of Pet Sounds references that no one probably got. Except maybe that I used the same font, Cooper Black, on the cover. In addition to that, I added a barcode to the back cover, which would have read, hang on to your ego, if anybody had ever actually scanned it. For the MP3 version of the album, I labeled it genre to be ego music, which is what Mike Love had derogatively labeled Pet Sounds as he protested Brian Wilson's departure from the surfing and car-themed songs, and which might have triggered the retitling of Hang On To Your Ego to I Know There's An Answer. In terms of the music, though, only two songs had direct links to the Beach Boys. One song, In Your Arms, was my attempt at doing a full-on orchestral-sounding song, and it had a chorus that only featured percussion and vocals, which was my go at creating something similar to one of the choruses in the lesser-known Beach Boys song, Lady Linda. The other song was called Try to Be Kind, and it might just be the best song I ever wrote. The other Mickle from Aesthetics and Culture, who loaned me Pet Sounds, later also loaned me the DVD of the Brian Wilson on Tour documentary, which was an absolute joy to watch. I watched it in March of 2005, and the last song that is featured in it is Love and Mercy, which would also close out the concert I'd see in Berkeley about six months later. It's the first song on Brian Wilson's self-titled debut solo album from 1988, and it clearly holds a special place in Brian's heart and left a huge impression on me when I first encountered it as the finale of this documentary. In fact, the song was still playing in my head when I started writing Try to Be Kind. Musically, I intentionally included sleigh bells as a nod to God Only Knows, and lyrically, I tried to write something that was directed at Brian who had spent years trying to overcome his stage fright and had begun claiming his well-deserved status as a musical genius by touring quite intensively, in spite of his seemingly quite fragile state. Knowing his story, simply seeing him perform, regardless of the song, brings about an immense amount of joy. I won't recite all the lyrics, but the song starts off with the words, 
Try to be kind as you ease your fragile mind. Do what you can to try and be strong as you slowly get older and try to stay young. You'll feel better. You'll feel better as you ease into a new phase of your life that is taking place right here, right now. The song goes beyond being this directly about Brian, and the rest of the song could be said to be about the general sense of growing older and trying to do good in the world while ensuring peace of mind. One part I'm particularly fond of represents the closest I've ever come to summarizing how I feel about my own generation. That is, Danish people who were in their early 20s around 2005. We never knew what books to burn. We're just dying to know what lessons to learn. I finished the album a few weeks before my 24th birthday in April 2006, and I distributed it in all the various ways I normally would, to friends, family, fellow students, and online. I like to think that a bunch of people paid attention to it and quite liked it, but it really didn't take off in any reasonable sense of the word. As such, it became the final Spring Colts album, and in 2007, I stopped writing songs. The music you've heard throughout this episode has consisted of different variations of Try to Be Kind, recorded specifically for this episode. But to close out the first part of this double episode, I will now play you the original 2006 version of the song. Thank you for listening, and enjoy, if you can. Try to be kind as you ease your fragile mind. Do what you can to try and be strong as you slowly get older and try to stay young. You'll feel better. You'll feel better as you ease into.
Sad, but then I might right here. 